0: As you do, turn in your scriptures to the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The church at Ephesus. What a glorious book. Treasure so rich. I've called uh, long called this uh, sermon series, Out with the Old, In with the New, in this section. But the power to change the man means the power to change the culture. And that is in Christ... We become, the old man becomes new, as we read in all the scripture this morning, uh, that uh, we are new creations in Christ, and as new creations, we can live and walk in new ways. So we're in the fourth chapter, we're working through the new man's actions, and uh, Paul is setting forth these injunctions in this last little section. Each one of them have a negative, a positive, and then a reason why. And we're on the third one in verse 28 this morning as we're going through this. Now, these actions that the new man has, these are not suggestions. These come in the forms of commandments. They're uh, in the literature, they're or in the Greek, they're in, in the imperative verb form. And they're in the present active imperative verb form. That means we're doing them and we're constantly doing them. So we're looking at each one of them as a commandment. Uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. These are things that the new man will do. And uh, because of that, we need to grab fast hold of these and live our lives accordingly as the people of God. Let's start in verse 25 and read this passage. Therefore, having put away falsehood, and this therefore ties us back to what He just said in 17 through 24. Has forgiven you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, um, we spend this time in your word. It's a glorious truth that we get to live and move and have our being, and we can worship freely this morning as we gather together and open this book, and as your spirit works in these words and yet indwells each individual believer here this morning, that we can look at this truth and agree to this truth and live this truth. What a glorious and practical thing the gospel is and how it is offset from paganism who says just be good but Father because you've regenerated our hearts you're making us good what a glorious truth that is and what a great difference it is to our lives here let us live as such be with us this morning come over my words this morning my simple words and my work and instill in the heart of your people encouragement and strength and truth this day so that they can live boldly for Jesus Christ in this place. We pray that in his name this day. Amen. Amen. No longer steal. We have three imperatives here that I want to kind of build the sermon around this morning. You've got the first one that's no longer steal and the negative, and then the second one, let him labor. And the third one's not an imperative, it's an infinitive, but be a blessing and not a burden. Be a blessing and not a burden, and that is that he winds this up by saying, work so that you'll have something to give to those who are in need. And that is the Christian way, is it not that we want to be a blessing and not a burden? We want to be a blessing to our church and not a burden on our church? We want to be a blessing to our community and not a burden on our community? We want to be a blessing in this world and not a burden as Christians. So, the formula for that is to quit stealing, get to work, <laughs> no longer steal, and let him labor are the two imperatives, the two uh, commands from our Lord this morning. And that verb, no longer steal, is an interesting, as you hear it in your ear, it's the word uh, Greek klepto, right? Where we get kleptomaniac from. Klepto, no longer steal. And it is a present active imperative. And that leaves us to understand that in the Greek and in the literature, God is commanding us that stealing is never right for us as Christians. No longer steal. And I think one of the things that we get uh, just a little bit of sideways on here this morning as we read Paul's words again there in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Most of us would balk and say, well, I'm not a thief, right? But let's consider these things of what a thief is and who a thief is. Yesterday afternoon at a birthday party we had, uh, my wife told a story about uh, my son's debit card, Malik's debit card, and recently, he'd used it at a local restaurant, and somebody had obviously written down the numbers and the expiration date, and they bought themselves some tickets to Florida on an airplane. Pretty bold, right? Um, I thought that was pretty cool. Someone had taken his information, Uh, when he used it to pay for the meal and purchase their own tickets with his money. At least that's what we think had had happened when the bank notified us because there had only been a couple places that he'd used us. They had stolen his money. It was a thief. This is what a thief is and does. They steal something that's not theirs that they didn't work for. He takes that which is not his by deceit and secret, and he buys with it something he did not earn by his own labor. I think that's a working definition of what the Bible's saying a thief is here this morning. This person had taken the information on his card in secret and purchased plane tickets that he did not earn or work for. That is theft. That's what a thief does. And when she told this story in a group of about ten folks, we quickly found out that almost everyone in the room had some type of like experience. They each had a similar story. We all have experienced this, haven't we? I mean, this type of theft in our society is rampant, right? And we might, you know, when we look at words like this from the scripture, we just kind of, I don't know, sometimes they roll off of us, but theft, if you think about it and just stop and think about it, just even in that group of 10 people, is constant. I mean, how many scam emails do you get? And how about the phone calls from your landline? And how many of you trashed a landline just because that's all it is, right? theft it's all around us, it's, and it's continual. And the fraud protection industry was $36 billion last year. It'll be about $45 billion this year. and It's expected to grow to about $120 billion by 2030. But who should be surprised, really, at those numbers? We live in a supply society that in some ways, especially in this one, is completely a sham. We live in a time where theft it's just absolutely normal. And the more normal it becomes, it's it's expected. I mean, we stopped and taught Malik what a scam email and these things were because we know that for the rest of his life, he'll probably deal with such situations just as this because thievery is all around us. And you see the videos on TV of the gangs and the people in the inner cities looting looting stores. And this is only going to increase as the consequences For those types of actions and committing such crimes continues to decrease. Very well, then this is what a thief is. But who is a thief? And probably more importantly, because somehow I have to indict each one of us in this thievery. And even if you're not sending scam emails or stealing somebody's information off of their credit card, I think that what scripture does here this morning is let us know that each one of us, in our own simple way, have stolen something. I know, right? Church full of, heaven's going to be full of forgiven thieves, right? That means the church is. I suspect that many of you would not consider yourselves to be among the fraudsters who send all those scam emails or who would secretly steal credit card numbers, nor among those who loot stores like gangs of wild thugs, and if I see you on one of the videos, we'll talk. But see, we we don't we don't suspect it because we're not doing that type. And that works on this continuum that I've constantly told you about. When we point to bad behavior or worse behavior to justify our bad behavior, all we're doing is pointing downward. All we're doing is justifying our own bad behavior. And so I say this morning, not so fast, because each one of us has stolen something, and this is the objective test I often give on the street or whenever I'm witnessing to someone, uh, whenever they think that they've been a pretty good person and I think that we would all put ourselves in that position at some point in our lives. But it seeks to illustrate the universality of sin by asking people if they've ever, have you ever broken the Ten Commandments? Because there's an objective standard by which we can know that we're among the most worst of sinners. There's an objective standard, an objective test that we can give ourselves so that when we point down, we know that we're actually pointing to ourselves. And I just start at the top usually and go down through some of the commandments. I look at somebody and I say, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Actually, that could be theft too because to not give God the glory he deserves is to rob him of that. Have you ever and always remembered the Sabbath day to keep it holy? We've all failed at each one of these. Have you ever told a lie? And I look right at people and I say, don't lie to me. And then I smile because by this time they're starting to figure out that all of us are guilty, including the person giving the gospel testimony. We're all guilty. We're all convicted of these crimes against God. Have you ever coveted? Oh, my goodness. I think I did that before I got here this morning. Have you ever committed adultery? Jesus said to look at a woman in lust or a man in lust is to commit adultery with them in your heart. Murder, same thing. So I look at them, and this is probably one of the most interesting things. I look at them and I say, have you ever stolen anything? And some of them will go, oh, I don't think so. You're pretty good. You can't answer that like that if you're honest with yourself. Can you? We've all stolen something. Many good people will take exception to that and say, well, I don't think so, but I would quickly point out to you to, to look at your taxes <laughs> or to work. Look at your work. Have you ever robbed just a little bit about of time from your boss? Or to many other questions you've been asking in your life where you were just not completely honest, I say, what did did what you do rob anyone of anything? Have you ever not declared all your income? And I, I try to tell every person that I've ever met in business because when I started out in business, I wouldn't say. I started out as a very young man. I tried to close every corner and put every loophole into play and hide every bit of cash that came my way. That's just because I'm a worse sinner than you guys. I'm sure I am, right? But you know what? It got to a point God saved me and I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't live with myself. I couldn't continue to do that. Because it brought shame on the God I I proclaimed with my mouth that I said that I loved. And every chance I get, because a lot of people talk to me about business and small businesses, I tell them from the start, don't do that. Set up your business so that it makes money even with the tax laws like it is today. We've all done it. And in this, I tell you that the apostle indicts us all. Why? Because sin is the awful, heinous thing it is. And we are, all of us, all people, are sinners. If you think you're not, that's a sin itself. Exodus 20.15, clear, simple, four words. You shall not steal. And each of us have broken the Lord's command there. And there it is. We're all accountable before God. And that's what I can confidently say to anyone I'm sharing the gospel with. These are objective standards. You know that you've broken them. You know it in your heart. Just as I have, just as everyone has, you are accountable before God. We have all broken that commandment. Indeed, some to greater extent, sure, but we are all guilty because even the most minor infraction is a breaking of that commandment. But we were... Morality and pagan religions say that just try to be good. We as Christians have a gospel that gives us the power to actually stop sinning. And that's the good news and the practical work of the gospel. To stop stealing. Jesus speaking to the people in Matthew chapter 15, 19 was teaching a very good truth. Let's turn over there. Matthew chapter 15 that helps us know that we're all indicted in this and that theft is indeed a part of sin. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 19. Turn there with me. Actually, I want to go back to verse 10. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? when Jesus never offended anybody. He's only love, right? Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? They were offended because they were convicted. They were convicted because what was in their heart didn't match what was coming out of their mouth. He answered, verse 13, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Judgment will come, right? Verse 14, Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Verse 15, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us, Jesus. And he said this, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and gets expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this is what defiles a person. Verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Do you hear the commandments here? This is the same objective standard we can all be judged by. Theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. But to eat, with unwashed hands, does not defile anyone. So the hope we have is in the gospel, and Paul gives us another section in 1 Corinthians 9, if you'll turn there briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I mean, that shows us the hope we have in the gospel. Because although we were sinners, God has done something in the gospel that gives us hope to wash away that sin. And that's why my emphasis on the opening scripture this morning was the fact that we are new and changed people. This section indeed is speaking, Paul is speaking of the old man putting off himself, and he has an ability to put off himself because of his regenerated heart and put on the new man. In other words, we're being transformed, and this is key, listen, because this is going to tie into the end. We are being transformed into the image of who? Christ. So to answer some of the questions at the end of the sermon, we'll need to understand that. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. So Paul makes this list here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, they will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, do you see it there, verse 10, top of verse 10? Nor thieves, nor swindlers, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Seemingly, there's no hope, but there is hope because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 11, That this is not like the pagan religions that just tell you to be good. Try to be better. Try to be a better version of yourself. By the way, that's what uh, a lot of pastors try to tell you. Live your best life now. Just try to be a better version of yourself. But it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Because Paul says, and such were some of you. All that list of sins gathers us all in, doesn't it? Such were some of you. You were like this. You were a sinner as such. See, it doesn't say those who just sold something small and those who stole something big like looting a Macy's. It lumps them all in as thieves. And thieves as a sin. And sin is that which keeps you from the kingdom of heaven. And such were some of you, Paul says, but you were washed. Something happened inside of you to give you a hope that you're not going to be counted as a thief on the day that the count is made. Such were some of you because you were washed. Washed in what? You were sanctified. You were justified in the name, in the glorious, perfect name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And Paul tells us time and time again, it's not only were we justified in his name, but because of what the gospel is doing, because it's literally changed my heart. It's transforming my mind and making me into a new man something I could not do by myself. I can't ever and I won't ever be able to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It just defies all of the laws of physics and all the capabilities of man. We can't do it. It's the gospel, beloved. It's that Jesus died so that through faith I can repent and turn away from my sin and not just turn away and try to start a new life, but turn away as a new creation that the word of God is now active upon and is transforming into the new life. It is the gospel, beloved. God has saved you and washed you in the blood of his beloved Son, and you are clean. Isaiah's perfect refrain. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins, <laughs> though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. John Brasos um, stood for 22 years in front of the first um, Planned Parenthood and near the church where he goes to church in Florida. And he's a crippled man who has to use one crutch to be able to stand. And for 22 years, he stood in front of that same Planned Parenthood, praying for the mothers and for what was taking place in there. And John had stood there for so long that he's wore an indentation in the concrete in front of that Planned Parenthood. His faithfulness is such over 22 years that he's literally made an imprint in the concrete
1: because he didn't move around a lot. He
0: just had that one crutch and he just shuffled back and forth and would turn and speak to people as they were coming and going and pray. He's still alive today, but he has pancreatic cancer, and they don't believe that he's going to make it. This is his fourth bout of cancer. And all that time he has spent, even though he's been sick and even though he's been crippled, he's been standing on that sidewalk praying, and he's left an imprint on that sidewalk. And when a pastor, Jeff Durbin, went to speak with John in the hospital, knowing... That his days are numbered. This just happened a couple weeks ago. He said, John, you know, what are you what's in your heart? What are you thinking? What are you looking forward to if God calls you home? What what's the one thing after all these years of faithfulness? And you know what he said? That I'll no longer sin against my Lord. Isn't that the heart of the one that's been changed? Whether I was a thief or a murderer or adulterer or whatever I was, take this sin from me. Wash me white as snow. Beloved, the gospel has given us a new heart and we're made new. No longer give credence to the old man and his old ways. The apostle is saying in Ephesians 4 let the thief no longer steal. A Christian should not and should never steal. This is not a characteristic of the new man or of the new life, but of the world and of sin. Thief, theft is rampant, but it's not part of the church. It's not ever part of the church. That is good, then. What should Christians do? And here comes the positive. As I've said, these little injunctions are first negative, then positive, and then give us a reason why. He says in the next verb... it's a present active imperative, let him labor. And the labor here that is is, uh, set forth in the scripture is not easy work. This is to be tired or weary as a result of hard or difficult endeavor. And I think to a large extent what the apostle is telling us as his church is, is that the work will be hard, the labor will be difficult. John has labored diligently and difficultly at that Planned Parenthood for the last 22 years. It's not been easy. He's been spit upon, he's been hit. He's gone through a lot of things. And while he could revile back, he chose not to revile back. And I think in that we begin to see a picture of the labor of a Christian. The first thing we need to know is that work is good. It is something that God have prepared beforehand for us to do, to work with our own hands, is good. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then, what did he do? The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden and he told him to work, abide, and keep it. To work and to keep it. So before the fall, work was instituted as good. But since the fall... Work has become hard. Why? Well, that work was good and given before the fall to give man pleasure and a sense of accomplishment and a way by which to glorify God in the manner in which it was carried out. And very well, because work is dignified and good, this explains why theft came about, because the fall and the curse and the perversion that comes from the lies of the enemy. Because when man sinned, God told Adam, Genesis 3, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it, and all the days of your life, the thorns and the thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground by the sweat of your face and by the hard work. For out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So before the fall, work was good. After the fall, work was made hard and bad because of sin coming into the world. And this is another very practical part of the gospel. It's in our sinful state that we try to thieve and get ahead. We take risk, right? We count our taxes short. We cut our time short for our boss. We cut our payment short. And short for our employees we try to get ahead little things we do maybe it's outright theft maybe it's just little things all along but it's all theft and because sin is a part of the world work has become what is, has become in our society today it's become despised it's something to try to get out of try to, try to uh, get the things you want without doing the work that it takes and necessary to get them but the glorious gospel comes in and makes work good gives us the ability, because grace restores nature, to please God with our work. Work then, like anything else that God has created as good, has become corrupted by sin but is being restored in the gospel. It is easy to see why man, under the curse above, began to steal and desire things that he did not earn and used to see to gain those things. Yet the gospel restores nature, and in Christ our work, the work of our hands has dignity and meaning and purpose. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is never in vain in the Lord. All your labor in the Lord is never in vain, it is good. Amen? And work is necessary. The apostle says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so they may have something to share with anyone in need. And this is kind of the capstone of this. Honest work means vocation. God has given each of us a means by whereby we can do that which he has given us to do and to do it in a way that brings him glory. He made us that way and made us for it. Ephesians 2.10 says that specific truth. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sin destroyed that. It took us on a path of destruction. But when the Spirit came in and saved us, we began work and we began doing the good works that God has called us to do. And this is where it becomes a blessing. This is where we want to turn from being a burden, someone who steals and don't work and actually becomes a a burden on society, We want to turn from that and become a blessing, someone that works and handles his work life properly so that he has something left over to give to those in need. Be a blessing and not a burden. Have something to give. And this is perhaps the most difficult of the principles that Paul lays down for the Christians. You know why? Because how much do we give and who do we give it to? Okay, Paul. How much do I set aside to give and whom do I give it to? Working so you will have something to share with anyone in need. Anyone in need? How do I be a good Christian and fulfill that? How much do we give and who do I give it to? What is our Christian responsibility here to give to the needy? Because when you start to give and you look at our nation, everybody becomes needy. And charity becomes toxic. Because we live in a nation that largely believes that, and this is where you go right back into the realm of thief, that they deserve all these things without doing the work that's required of them to earn them. That's why we get stolen debit cards to begin with, right? Somebody thought that they should have tickets to Florida using money that they did not deserve. So that's the dichotomy there. That's the that's what we're swinging around in here So I want to give out just a few principles to help you deal with this just a little bit over the last few minutes that we have. First, principle one is take care of your own. That is, we are called to work, do honest work with our own hands so that we can share with anyone who has a need. That first begins with understanding our limitations and the appropriate lifestyle that our work can provide so that we can live accordingly to the point where after our living there is something left to give. Don't ever be ashamed to take care of your own family first. Don't ever be ashamed to take care of your own family first. In fact, that's a godly biblical principle. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So in our work life, when we start to balance this, we take care of our people first. Living in a way that fits your work, that is, God has given you some specific talent and you're making an income from it and he's blessing you with that, don't live beyond it. Because in your living beyond it, you sinned in not having something good to give to those who are in need. And this is a spiritual responsibility that you have to take care of your people first. This is the first truth in being a blessing and not a burden. Many things make this difficult and principle number two, Holds this. Live within your means. The greatest thing is perhaps our sinful desire to want more than we can afford and to take advantage of the more than cooperative financial lending opportunities that are available. We can quickly find ourselves spending more than we make and owing more than we can afford. 75% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. That's the same thing as theft. You want something that you cannot afford. and you go to means that you cannot pay back to get that which you desire. 75% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. When Christians live like this, they are not fulfilling this the apostles' injunction, not this injunction. This is a difficult way to live and presses the command to no longer steal right to the end. You ever heard robbing Peter to pay Paul? Too many people live like that. Principle number three, Define who is needy. Define who is needy. Our system has created an electorate who looks to the government for all their sustenance. And you think that this doesn't convict you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab a hold of you a little bit this morning. The people of the state of New Jersey love their government. You know how I know? We send them a lot of money. We send a big tithe every year. The tax burden here is incredible because we've defined who is needy to a point where it becomes toxic, and it's like that in much of the United States, and it's through the election of people who want to stay in power, they create a class of needy so that they can create votes. Toxic charity, giving without defining need, has created a class of people that built the government and lied to do whatever they can to get their fair share. That's not what the apostle is saying here is needy. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Boy, that's forgotten in our society today. Empathy has largely smoothed that over. Empathy has largely smoothed that over. I don't have time to go into that, but it's true. A lot of people have been taught not to work. By us giving them something to eat. Principle number four, I would say men and Christians look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When you're trying to define how much to give and who to give it to, look to the example that we have in Christ. He is example, illustration par excellence. Men, if you want to know how much to give to your wife and how much to love them, look to Jesus. Men, if you want to know how hard to work, look to Jesus. Men, if you want to know how to define who is needy, look to Jesus. Jesus never gave in to the political authorities. He called them exactly what they were. He knew the ones that weren't working. Yet he loved everybody well and he treated everybody with grace and mercy, whether it was the stark reaction that he gave that we read from Matthew this morning to those Pharisees who were indicted deep in their hearts or whether it was the healing of the woman at the well through her five husbands, Jesus knew exactly what to give and who to give it to. The best illustration I can take you to this morning is where we're going to finish. Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me there. Philippians chapter 2. How much do we give? Who do we give it to? So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind. Having that same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is calling for a, a unity of the believers at the church at Philippi. He's calling for a unity that we'd be of one mind, one spirit, because there's one baptism and one Lord who is Lord over all, right? That we be of one mind, that unity of what Christ was, were to be. Do nothing, Paul says in, in verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that still begs the question, how, to what extent? How much do we give and who do we give to? Who are those others? Well, in this context and in Ephesians, it's chapter 4, but we know the rest of the Bible tells us that we're to give to the poor. In fact, the poor are always going to be with us, Jesus says, because the poor are not here just to torture them. The poor are here more for a test for us and how we treat them. Liz and I learned that fast in 20 years of fostering and adopting. Verse 4, let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Here's our illustration. Here's our example. Here's the point to which we can commit our life. Here's the answer to the question of how much do I give and who do I give it to. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be held on to. But rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's your answer. How much do you give? And who do you give it to? Christ gave everything so that his church could live. That's our example. I fall short every day, right? We all do. But that's the illustration. Christ gave everything and went to the cross to die for us so that we could have everything. He labored hard under the work that he was called to do. He fulfills the imperatives in this passage of Scripture like we're called to fulfill them. He labored hard under the load of our sin so that we could be free. How much do we give? Christ gave all. Christ gave all. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. What did Christ give? And for whom did he die? Let the thief no longer steal. but Let him work with his hands doing honest work so that he can give to those in need. Don't be a burden. Be a blessing. Amen? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we see the example of Christ. We know the great gulf that's between us and Him. And Father, in humility, we have to understand that we're to count others as more necessary than ourselves. This begins in our own families and in our own churches and flows out. Let us be a people who understand this, who have put away the ways of this world, who labor diligently, labor even as these these, uh, imperatives call us to, to be tired and weary, difficult endeavor. It is difficult, Father. But let us do so so that we'll have good to give to others. Let us do the good works that you've made beforehand for us to do, and let us do it all, all of it to the glory to your glory, and to Christ's honor. Father, may we be that church this day who handles rightly these truths. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if our men will come.